Now's a good time to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions. There's a lot of great things about this relationship. Like us, Survivors for Solutions wants to see continued innovation in the pharmaceutical space. They embrace the free market and believe that the free market is the best solution to improve patient lives. It was founded by our close friend CZ or John Swartaki. CZ founded the group when he saw the damage that the Inflation Reduction Act was going to bring to the pharmaceutical ecosystem. He's been a patient, and Eric, I think you'll talk about that in a minute, but he's been a patient for several decades himself, and he wants solutions not just for himself, but for his family and friends and for Americans in the future. And he knows how important it is for continued pharmaceutical innovation to happen here in the United States, because if it doesn't, it won't happen anywhere. Joe, you're right. CZ is a longtime friend of both of ours and a seasoned Washington pro. But what most people don't know is that John Swartaki has also suffered from multiple sclerosis for over 30 years. He was diagnosed and has required four different breakthrough drugs over the course of this disease in order to just live. All these drugs have been developed in a robust ecosystem of medical discovery and delivery an ecosystem that the Inflation Reduction Act and President Biden now threaten. That threatens the hope and security and safety, the liberty, and ultimately the lives of millions of Americans suffering from chronic, debilitating, or life-threatening disease. He formed Survivors for Solutions to help save this system so others like himself have the chance at a fulfilling and robust life. You can learn more about CZ and his lifelong struggle with multiple sclerosis from our March 27th DC EKG interview, plus his website, survivorsforsolutions.org, or on Twitter, at Hope Matters Most. Joe, we're really fortunate CZ is our leader here at DC EKG, and we look forward to advocating on his behalf and the behalf of millions of American patients in the years to come on our show. Welcome back to DC EKG with Eric Uland and myself, Joe Grogan. We're joined by David Sr. and we're continuing the discussion about drug shortages. David, you spoke uh, before we broke about the necessity of getting more manufacturing here in the United States and um, creating some advanced manufacturing. Can you talk about that a little bit? What do you mean by advanced manufacturing? And what do you think might be necessary to have more manufacturing of pharmaceutical products and finished pharmaceutical products here in the United States? Thanks, Joe. Uh, Pleasure to answer these questions as best I can, again, not being a scientist, but, you know, when, when we talk about advanced manufacturing, we're talking about manufacturing that typically uh, uses uh, continuous flow um, as opposed to batch uh, manufacturing. So it's done in, you know, it's a very different way in a different footprint, uh, different technology that's continuously measuring, um, you know, the output, the quality of the output. Um, and, and the theory is that, um, this new footprint uh, of technology that you know typically uh, generates a higher yield of product. So you you start with you know your ingredients that go into the manufacturing process. Typically, uh, continuous flow manufacturing uh, generates a higher yield. So you know there's more that can be produced 
uh, with the same uh, base ingredients. Um, and, and there's great optimism and promise that this is you know, a way that, that the US can compete uh, with, with Asia um, in terms of the manufacturing process. Uh, the, the, the truth is that, you know, manufacturing labor costs in, in Asia are in India and China, are, you know, a, a fraction of the U.S. And so it really would take uh, technology to compete head to head in terms of uh, the cost position um, or, or that's the, you know, that's the theory behind it. But, um, you know, this takes this takes investment. And I think that, you know, when we think about um, the role of you know, bringing uh, manufacturing back to the US, um, there has to be some level of cost competitiveness. And you know, the question is, does it have to meet it dollar for dollar? And what we hear from manufacturers is, um, look, we, we wanna be cost uh, competitive, but when we think about cost competitive, is that every single day or is that you know, across, across a period of time with the reliability of supply? That you know, U.S. manufacturing Mac manufacturer uh, could generate. So yes, you might be able to buy that product somewhere else. You know, ninety-five days out of hundred at a lower cost. But but when when product goes into shortage, uh, you're gonna, you're effectively paying for that. And so, can we come up with a different structure? And you know, we're we're involved as a distributor. We're involved in you know a number of uh, discussions with manufacturers about uh, you know not just you know their role in in terms of manufacturing, but how could we be a commercial partner to help you know uh, bring that uh, bring that pr product to market? Because you know we focus on price uh, when we're we're making our sourcing decisions, but we we focus a lot on reliability. And you know this is a key aspect to, to reliability for us. So how do you measure reliability? How do you assess reliability? How does the company evaluate that when it's making decisions? Is there a set of objective metrics? Do you have internal rubrics? How does that all work? Well, with the, without getting into the specifics, I mean it it, it, right. it ties to it ties to do we get product? We sign a contract with the manufacturer, and are we confident that we will get product? So it's one thing for a manufacturer to offer a price to us, but are we are we confident that next day, next week, every day they will have product available to us? And to the extent that you know there are any hiccups or issues, they work closely with us, you know, smooth those out, um, and ensure that. Uh, um, you know, we know what's happening. And so we've got complete visibility, you know, to the extent that we have to rely on a secondary supplier, we've got, you know, information. But generally speaking, Eric, it's about reliability. It's, it's about the fact that we, we, we have access to product. We're not playing a role of, you know, and there's a lot of conversation in the industry about quality scores. Um, and, you know, we, we, we certainly look at the, uh, you know, the output of FDA reports, you know, 483s and, and whatnot, but ultimately it comes down to, to, are we confident that that manufacturer can, can meet our, our customers' needs? David, you, you've been involved in conversations on the Hill going back many years. Post-COVID or during COVID, there was a ton of attention on the Hill for, because of shortages of everything from masks to worries about the components that go into vaccines. Uh, but then, you know, as usual in the United States, after a crisis of some sort, whether it's 9-11 or whatever, it goes back to business as usual. What's the tempo of conversations without getting into specifics or how optimistic are you that policymakers, whether they're in the Biden administration or on the Hill, 
may see an opportunity to to move in a direction to address shortages? Or do you think it's going to be a little bit of time? Do you think that, that there are serious people working on the issue and something might happen in the next few years? Joe, we, we are optimistic. And to your point, uh, you know, we've been working on this and thinking about this for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I would tell you that, um, you know, I'll just tell a little story. In 2019, I was focused on, um, uh, you know, quality, uh, shortages, um, price volatility, both up and down. And, and I was doing a presentation to a group from Department of Defense about economics in the channel. And I get to the end of the presentation and, um, you know, they said, that was all interesting, Mr. Senior, but, you know, if, if this trade war with China, you know, expands and, you know, exports, imports are shut down, you know, what would happen? And I, I had no answer to that question. <laughs> And, and, you know, that really turned me on to the fact that the fourth pillar of, you know, the, the issue here is national security. And I think that, um, you know, to the extent that that's recognized um, as, uh, as, as a key here, you know, that, that accelerates things. What, what I tell you, Joe, is that during COVID, um, I think the issue about drug, drug shortages from the standpoint of how the market functions and the pressure on, on the industry um, got got mixed together with um, with what was happening with the pandemic. And, you know, we were trying to talk about some of these solutions and, you know, that, that we've been talking about um, with policymakers, but the idea of, of you know, combining uh, demand-driven shortages and supply-driven shortages together, you know, we see it playing out in Congress as a, as a complicated thing. And, you know, some people want to separate those two into, into two buckets, others want to combine them. Uh, what I'd say is the, I would hope that, that, that the solutions for shortages also do uh, play a role in, in you know, demand-driven emergencies. Um, what I'd say is that, Joe, I think people have been really confused over the last few years about this. And, you know, it, it, there was so much focus during the pandemic on demand uh, shortages that I think this got left behind. And, you know, some of the things that people were thinking about, uh, you know, seminal report out of FDA in 2019 on shortages. I think people are coming back actually to this issue about supply driven shortages, which, you know, aren't as dramatic, uh, but are, you know, if you add them all together, they are a a massive issue, and I think policymakers are understanding that. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably the most optimistic I've been in years. And to your point, I've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, talking to people on Capitol Hill and and other and in the agencies about these topics. And I, I, I see a level of focus on this that I have not seen in several years. Well, that's interesting here, and uh, usually most people watching Congress wondering whether or not they can produce anything are pretty pessimistic. So it's, <laughs> it's fun to hear optimism. In addition to increasing the level of policy sophistication as you kind of look at these, these two challenges uh, and ways to, to handle them, are there other aspects of what might be smart public policy to onshore and then deal with these, by that I'm meaning on the tax side, on the regulatory side, other pieces of, of statute on the federal level, as well as partnerships with states. How do you go about thinking of this, or should you go about thinking of this, I guess a better way of, of saying it, only in, look, this is this problem that we should solve with these tools, or there are other tools we could bring to bear here? 
Well, it, I think there are a, a gamut of, of tax incentives that, that you know, manufacturers are looking for to stand up uh, new uh, capacity in the U.S. Um, you know, we're, we're a member of, of a coalition called uh, um, the SAMS Coalition, uh, Safe and Safety and American Medical Supply. Um, and, you know, we're... We believe that you know these incentives can play a role in you know again diversifying where the supply chain uh, starts, not not bringing all manufacturing back to the U.S. I think that's unrealistic uh, for many reasons. Uh, but but if we had a, you know a more sound balance, in particular as it comes uh, to you know the essential medicines, which oftentimes are injectable products, but not not exclusively injectable products. Um, so I think tax incentives uh, for standing up manufacturing could be uh, a piece of this um, uh, for the R&D, for standing up facilities. Um, the, the other thing that you know, people are, are trying to figure out is on the reimbursement side. So you know, to the extent that, uh, you know, that uh, pharmacies providers are paid more for uh, using certain products, how does that translate into you know those let's call it american made products onshore or nearshore products and you know you'd have to tie additional reimbursement to those products and you know nobody's cracked the code on that but it's an intriguing idea that you know that whether it's not just the government but but uh, you know uh, uh, the the pharmacy community would would um, not just be paying more, but be reimbursed more for those products that are, that are getting support from from the government. You mentioned drug pricing in this uh, here, and we're not going to be uh, able to get through all this before we break. But let's talk a little bit about the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed Congress recently in an effort to bring prices down. Now, um, I know I don't want to put you in a difficult spot, but I'm interested in how you're thinking about these sort of pricing cliffs that the government is going to impose at nine years for small molecule drugs, uh, a little bit over 12 years for the biologics drugs. Uh, there's been some chatter um, in the ether that shortages are already occurring because of that. I'm interested in your opinion about that, number one. And two, a number of companies have, said, have announced that they're killing specific therapeutic programs because of the Inflation Reduction Act. You don't have to give us an opinion about the merits of any of the or the wisdom of the lawsuit, but I'm interested of the lawsuits or the legislation. But I'm interested in your experience in watching this. How do you see this playing out and and this massive change? Are you have you cracked the code yet, or is it still something you're trying to evaluate? Uh, Joe, yeah, thanks for not putting me too much on the spot um, with uh, just you know, enough to find on things that are you know could get me into trouble. Um, but yes, I mean, I think we we do see you know manufacturers, you know, they're they're uh, oftentimes you know they're they're announcing you know cutbacks in their research and development. I mean, they're they're say, saying it to Wall Street, and they can't say that to Wall Street unless unless it's true. So you know. It, it, it stands to reason that uh, there are going to be, you know, tougher decisions around R&D, you know, and whether it's, you know, new products coming to market or, you know, things, other other places where, you know, manufacturers may be uh, doing investments, you know, additional, additional ind indications, uh, research on earlier uh, treatment lines, uh, you know, additional diseases, you know, whatnot. So it's not just 
just new products, but it's existing products and how do you, how do you ensure that, that they're maximized? And so, um, you know, we're going to see this play out over time. Um, it, it is, you know, from, from where we stand, it, it is, it is going to be a substantial change uh, to the market. And, you know, as it pertains to, I, the only thing I'd say about the research and development and, you know, what's going to take place is, you know, we'll never know. <laughs> you know, we'll never know if one product or 135 products don't get invented because of, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act. And we won't know if it's a blockbuster, you know, the next Katrina or, you know, another Me Too that doesn't get created. So, you know, I, I think all the academic research to try to figure out, um, you know, how it's going to impact, um, uh, you, you don't know. Um, and, and I sort of respect the analyses on both sides. Of the, it's one product or 135. Um, but, you know, we, we sort of will never know. But, uh, you know, it's it's pretty clear that, you know, R&D is, is being impacted. And I think from the standpoint of, of um, you know, how this plays out, I mean, you know, CMS is issuing uh, guidance. They came out with preliminary guidance um, a few months ago. They came out with, uh, you know, additional guidance at the end of June. Uh, in terms of how they're thinking through this, and it's interesting watching the evolution. This is this is so complicated um, in terms of you know. I mean, you you know from your time in government uh, that you know what about this? What about that? All of the details that have to be thought through, and you know what we think. The way I always think about this is um, not to say this was inevitable that Inflation Reduction Act was coming, uh, but. Uh, you know, we've sort of been bracing for it since uh, Medicare Part D was passed. And, uh, you know, it was sort of one of the things that was out there. Um, now it's out there. And, uh, you know, it's a thing that, you know, we know is a certainty. There are so many uncertainties around uh, what's going to happen with respect to, uh, you know, uh, new R&D, how the channel uh, responds and reacts to this. Um, we are expecting some significant changes. Uh, to, you know, sort of the R&D, you know, how new products are priced. Um, and uh, there are so many different aspects to the, to the law that, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, digest what's going to happen. And, you know, I, I find myself, you know, playing, you know, the economist, which is, well, it could be this or it could be the opposite of this um, in terms of, you know, the, the, out, the outcome. And, you know, the, the example I'd give is the inflation penalties. Um, you know, it's, it's so interesting, and this might be a little bit off topic to your question, but, um, you know, in, in other parts of healthcare, uh, where the government is the payer, uh, um, and the government is, is, you know, one of the things that, you know, back to my point about Part D is, you know, I, I, I started my career not in pharmaceuticals, I started in provider services and was very used to the idea that the government, you know, effectively set price for what they were willing to pay when they're the buyer. Um, and, you know, what we, what we see in those situations is typically that uh, if the government is constraining uh, reimbursement, so call it hospital reimbursement, DRG rates going up 1% per year, you know, what happens? Well, list price goes up faster and the commercial, the commercial market pays more and more. And so, you know, there's a th there would have been a theory that that's what's gonna happen here. That, you know, list price is gonna actually accelerate faster. Commercial market's gonna pay more. And, you know, that could happen. Uh, I, I'd say the thing that's gonna constrain that is the inflation penalties. So the inflation penalties around uh, drug companies raising price faster than inflation. Um, and, you know, this on top of 
the, the inflation penalties that now are you know sort of accelerating in the Medicaid space as well. And so you know we're 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 dealing with a new environment in terms of of you know pricing and um, you know in in the last thirty years with CPI being between call it one and a half and three percent pretty pretty steady for those years there's been no correlation between CPI and drug prices um, uh, drug price increases and you know now all of a sudden uh, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, if these penalties stack up in a way that, you know, uh, bring more correlation between those two. Um, I, I've swung, personally, I've swung more in that direction from, from sort of my history of, uh, you know, the government is subsidized by the commercial market. Uh, but, you know, we don't know. We don't know where it's going to head. Great point. And with that, David, I think this was a rich topic of conversation. Let's hold and we'll be back for our next segment. This is DCEKG with Eric Uland and host Joe Grogan.